0: Welcome to Tiny Voice Talks with me, Toria Bono. And I'm so pleased to have you here with me today because we are talking about the power of positive education with Neris Hughes. So welcome, Neris. Hi, Toria.
1: It's lovely to meet you properly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited you're here with me today. Now, for anyone that hasn't come
1: across you or doesn't know who you are, who is Neris Hughes? Uh, I am an occupational therapist, by trade. Um, I'm a mum of two and I'm clinical director and founder of Whole Child Therapy, a social enterprise multidisciplinary therapy service based here predominantly in the United Kingdom and across the the UK.
0: Now, I'm going to ask the question that every other listener is, that every listener is thinking, which is, well, what is occupational therapy apart from the people that you might have to speak to if you're off work for a while?
1: You know, okay. how, how, explain occupational therapy to me. Okay, well, the occupational health people that you have to speak to to come back to work are very rarely occupational therapists. They're usually oh. nurses. So there's the first part where we're really, nobody knows what we do. I even joke oh. that nobody knows what I do, even my mother. But occupational <laughs> therapists are the, are the great unknown in healthcare. But what's really interesting is that we train in sociology, social communication. We train in physical, environmental, um, and psychological health and well-being. So we really do work with the whole of the person, which is probably why I ended up calling my practice whole child therapy. Um, we, We learn to look at a person as a unique being and we truly believe that a person has to be able to participate in their community to be able to do and to be productive in order to find well-being and meaning and we will work with a person whether that's through their mental health or their physical health or their environmental barriers to help them participate in the occupations that enable them to find meaning and enable them to be productive. So for instance, one of the things that I talk a lot about is the environment is more than just the physical environment. So an occupational therapist might come and measure up to fit a ramp at your front door so your wheelchair can go into your house. But we'd also go into the school and we'd work with the school on what institutional barriers, what social barriers are stopping a child from learning as well. So we genuinely look at the person, the task that they want to achieve and the environment that they're doing it in. And we work out what's enabling and what's disabling. Um, One of the core foundations of occupational therapy, which is why I'm totally in love with my profession, is that we do not believe a person is disabled. We believe a person may have an impairment. They may have an illness. They may have an injury. uh, They may have a difference but that they are only as disabled as the environment that they inhabit makes them. So social attitudes such as racism or disablism or ageism can be disabling. Um, institutional attitude, you know, are we asking a, an elephant to swim and a fish to climb a tree? Those would be disabling factors. Whereas when we put in, especially if we're looking at children, if we put into that child's life, strategies that enable them then they're no longer disabled are they they may have an impairment a vision impairment they may be a wheelchair user they may have lost a right leg to meningitis but if we enable them through environmental change and task adaptation then that child will go on to achieve to be productive and to belong within the community that they wish to exist within so where did
0: this passion come from do you think for for well basically the whole
1: child for, yeah and for empowerment I guess um and enablement mm, yeah that's yeah absolutely where where did that come from it, it well I it, probably my own childhood I'm profoundly dyslexic mm-hmm. I left school on paper illiterate if you academically test me my spelling is still only that of, of an eight-year-old child and um, mm-hmm. I genuinely cannot tell you the difference between a noun and a pronoun and an objective and a st- Subjective mm-hmm. and uh, Ellie, uh, who who introduced you to me, Toria. She she Yes, she tricks. did. We love yeah, our Ellie, by the way. She, we love our Ellie. She Shout she spelled chicks. Yeah. Ellie from Speaking of yeah. Books. Um, although she in theory is my performance agent, she very much takes control of my social media because she's like, "Oh my god, woman, you're mm-hmm. so clever!" But if the world see you spelling pediatric wrong, no one's going to take you seriously. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so she enables me by making sure mm. that that my dyslexia is 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 put through a filter, is 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 yeah. supported before the public get to see it. And I suppose being a child who was very disabled, very marginalised. Um, yes. Throughout her childhood, I grew up in. I am very old. Um, fortunately, on this podcast, you can't see how old I am, so we'll pretend that I look youthful. But, um, <laughs> I, I, I've I seen up. you do look thank, youthful. Thank you, Toria. Um, but I, I spent my childhood it, with my first ever educational statement of need saying, if this borough accepted dyslexia as a diagnosis, Neris would be dyslexic. As we don't, she's educationally behaviourally disordered. So I received punishments to stop me being dyslexic. And I received punishments throughout my primary education of being excluded from the classroom, um, having my work torn up in front of my class, my peers Gosh. being stopped going out to lunch breaks. Um, and I was told on a regular basis, you are choosing not to do this. You are too bright. You should be able to do this. Um, and I suppose that what I wanted to do with whole child therapy was empower children and young people to be very bright without a but um yeah and you know the irony is I actually set whole child therapy up I was working in the NHS and I thought I would uh, I was working in the NHS in a charity at the time um and I genuinely thought that I would continue to do so I've you know I'm very socially minded which is why we're a social enterprise dad's a social worker mum's a teacher didn't you know ever think I'd be in the private sector Mm. which so I suppose I straddle the private sector by being a social enterprise but I I genuinely thought that I would be in the public sector forever and until my own son like his mum didn't fall far from the tree profoundly dyspraxic borderline dyslexic really bright very adhd in his personality type and the way his body moves and he is um and got very little help and the day his senko tore his work up in front of his class I realized that nothing had changed in the 25 years since I'd been at school nothing had changed yeah. Um, and so I suppose I, we we joke that whole child therapy was set up by the very angry woman with a swing in a church.
0: What did young Nerys need? What What did you need in that classroom? Um, apart from not having your work torn up, and <laughs> apart from your, you know, and also what did your son need? What does that look like in the classroom if we're actually applying that whole child therapy, that occupational therapy approach to it?
1: Well, we, we our, our mission statement says that we strive to enable every child to achieve joy. And if I go back to the core principles of my profession, and I think healthcare professionals, we love to stay in our lane and know what we know. I personally believe that we need to be productive we need to Mm -hmm. succeed one of the questions i ask is can we instead of evaluating how many times a child has failed this week can we evaluate how many times a child has won has succeeded let's measure our children's success and let's not measure their failings you know if we're truly using that growth mindset potential um i regularly say are we asking this child to copy In this one task right now, or are we asking this child to learn about Henry VIII and his wives? Because if we're asking a dyslexic child or a child with cerebral palsy or a child with ADHD or even just a child who listens better when they're not writing, they're more of an oral learner than visual learner if we're asking to learn about Henry VIII, do they have to copy off the board or can we take that task away from them? Can we bridge that gap and enable them to do the bit of learning that's meaningful in that moment? I'm not asking us to stop children from learning. I mean, obviously, I I, I went on to the Peninsula Medical School, became an occupational therapist. I'm a clinical director. I'm a company director. uh, I'm a company founder. I employ over 10 to lifting staff at any one time Mm -hmm. and i mean employ i don't have consultants we do have consultants as well but i actually employ and do all of that big director ceo stuff Um, yet i was the kid who was most likely to fail i was the nuisance of the classroom i was the child who wasn't allowed to sit their gccs because i'd bring down the grades of the school so i i didn't fail i was failed Um, and what little Neris needed was an opportunity to win because I spent a very long time not believing I could be successful at anything. You know, luckily enough, I'm stubborn enough and obstinate enough that, that I sort of didn't believe that and went on to stamp my foot and get myself to medical school. But it's, there are many, many children who are being made to feel like they fail. Um, And I think that we need to look at the power of enabling them and how useful those enablement strategies are, Toria. So the the strategies that enable the kiddo who is different are really powerful for the other children too.
0: Yeah, and that's why you wanted to call this the power of positive Mm. education. Because actually, it's not about, well, this child over here can have a fiddle toy and this child over here can have, you know, sort of a yeah um, sign language sign thank you communication thank you my brain or, my brain went there did you notice that yeah um yeah thanks for filling in and trying to cover <laughs> up um but yeah so i
1: th- it is about the ho- the whole mm. the whole class isn't it yeah the whole class the whole child the whole environment you know look Victoria we've got disability advocacy happening you know, just even the other day, I was watching a TV program. It's just two comedians, and it's a comedian here, cerebral palsy. And she was going and testing gyms um, for Joe mm. Lysett. She was going and testing how many gyms had disability access. Joe Lysett said this brilliant line. He said, But that means that none of the Paralympians Olympians could train in that gym. Yeah. Just just because there, there was no changing room that was wheelchair accessible, and there mm. were five sets st- of st- 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 stairs into the gym. Our Olympians wouldn't be able to get in there. But what Jim doesn't want a Paralympian as their figurehead? If we don't enable our environment, beyond that, we've got the Black Lives Matters movements. We've got the Me Too movement. We've got Women Should Feel Safe. We have to to make institutional change, environmental institutional change, to enable our community to have a much deeper and greater sense of belonging. And that shake-up needs to come across all aspects of human function human life but here in education is one of the greatest places to start if we're using sign in the classroom for all children that child with a hearing impairment or a communication disorder is no longer different and i'll guarantee you that other children are going to benefit from that multi-sensory multi-layered communication if we are all you know in japan and china and actually in the uk there's been loads of research on um, increased executive functioning and increased academic outcomes on regular movement breaks throughout the day so why is just the child with autism and an educational healthcare plan having movement breaks throughout their day every child gets better academic results by being provided with movement breaks
0: yeah it's a fascinating one and it's, i think it's, it's a is. no-brainer it's, yeah It's if a child has something written down, then we do it. If a child doesn't, then, well, they they don't get it. Why Uh, is that? I mean, and that's the thing, you know, why is that? Why have we fallen into that pattern? And why do we accept that if you as an occupational therapist are actually saying to me, do you know what? Every single child would benefit from that.
1: Um, I think because we we're fixed on evidence-based practice aren't we we're fixed mm-hmm. on um and, and and evidence-based practice is incredibly powerful and I do not move away from it but one of the things that I was really lucky to learn early in my career was um in in occupational therapy we have this brilliant researchers Mattingly and Fleming who looked at clinical reasoning of occupational therapists because occupational therapists are so different to everybody else on the job because we do you know we're, we're we're jokingly the jack of all trades, the master of none, because we do a bit of everybody else's job. So we might work with a kiddo on their handwriting, or we might work with a kiddo on their communication, or we we might work with a kiddo on their community access. And everybody else in the team is going to argue that that's partly their job too. So the the OT has always done a bit of everything, which gives us a whole perspective. And um, I think one of the things that that we look at in evidence-based practice as an OT for our clinical reasoning is this sort of, this conditional reasoning, this knowing from previous experience with somebody or being able to pull from another professional's research body, why that's meaningful. So in our OT reports at Whole Child Therapy, we reflect on a child's Ericsson stages of development, their psychosocial stages of development. We pull in from this psychological frame of reference and we use the psychologist's evidence base to advocate our own work and as a template for us. And because OTs are so used to borrowing other people's evidence base, we're really good at sort of making a cocktail of, something else like the <laughs> you might want to call it the frankenstein of education mm. and health but we pull together from these other bodies so we're we, we have a broader evidence base i think than teachers or, or or psychologists are necessarily allowed to draw from and i think that might be the biggest problem because we're saying well it isn't evidence-based well it is evidence-based because if we look at this other research that isn't from education but is from physiotherapy in Japan we can use we are allowed to use that evidence base so i think allowing ourselves to be progressive by using other people's research is one of the things that i would encourage educators and schools and senkos and and school leaders to do a bit more of it's okay that it wasn't a teacher or it wasn't in published in a test that you're finding this data and using this data meaningfully so, I hope that answers that question, Tori, because I kind of went off on a tangent, but very much so, it's about, I think, broadening our lens and looking wider. And I'm very, very lucky. I work on an inter and transdisciplinary team. So, every day I'm submerged with Senko's parents, children themselves. Um, I'm working with speech therapists, psychologists, play therapists, psychotherapists. So, I have such a broad lens that I apply. what I think of as an evidence base or what I think of as a working strategy and I think the difficulty for education is we have this very structured curriculum this very standardized testing we have this very linear concept of what outcomes are what's super interesting is when I talk to people like yourself Toya, who are educators or my own mum who was a teacher none of you actually believe that that one way does fit all children and all of you are desperate to break the shackles so it's yeah. how do we how do we break those shackles how do we redefine it I, I i do think it's about borrowing knowledge from others so you and i got to have a little chat earlier and we were talking about zones of regulation yeah um and you were saying that that's a curriculum it's called a curriculum specifically so teachers um can, and parents can use it but that was devised by a team of speech therapists and occupational therapists very clever ones actually over in australia um and that zones of regulation is now becoming osmotic isn't it is feeding into most educational environments and being used as a toolkit in most education environments so I think we're allowed to borrow from other areas and start layering more meaningfully on what is education for children and I would argue that belonging participating and doing should be the fundamental drive for all humans um, and especially for children Belonging, participating and doing. Absolutely.
0: Mm. I now want you to talk to the class teacher in me because, you know, senkos know all about occupational therapists. They also know all about the various things that are out there. But as a class teacher, you know, I don't always know what's out there. And if you're, you know, and we will have early career teachers as well, listening to this, Mm. who won't know what's out there. So, what sort of things you know are out there to support the
1: children in our classes and I know you're going to say a myriad of things but you know what I mean yes and no I think I think one of the one of my girls WhatsApp me last week and she said "Neris, I've just listened to a Brené Brown podcast where she's talking mm. to a psychologist and I don't have it I'll have to try and find it for you Toria but Brené was talking to a psychologist and the psychologist started to look at her outcome measures your client's laughter And uh, she was like, can we have laughter and joy as an outcome measure for our work? And I was like, yeah, let's find a way to make that clinically relevant. Let's do it. Wow. Yeah. Um, And I've worked with a lot of senior leadership teams about changing the goals that we set with children. Uh, and we set four children so moving away from p scales and the academic goals to the 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 core principles Mm. of human function so let's go to some really grassroots psychological well-being Maslow's hierarchy of need we all know the Maslow's hierarchy Mm -hmm. of need really don't we that pyramid of are you safe are you well are your needs met do you belong are you able to participate do you have meaning do you have relationships if Mm -hmm. we ask Those questions of ourselves as educators about the children in our class so about them as a community as a whole class of 30 children and then about them as individuals as about joe and jack and john and fred if we ask are they safe are they well are they achieving and do they belong we're suddenly looking at our classroom in a much more powerful way Really and when we're looking at yeah. And suddenly by looking at the drive of humanness, who are they? What's meaningful to them? And if we look at that both at an, an individual level and an organizational level, what is meaningful to a group of seven-year-olds? Mm-hmm. But what's meaningful to a group of seven-year-olds is not do they know their nouns and do they know where a full stop goes. What's meaningful to you, Toria, as a class teacher, is are you able to evidence their learning? Those two things aren't in contradiction of each other. They can run side by side because the occupation Mm -hmm. is the spelling and the grammar and the nouns and the literacy and the numeracy skills. But the occupation and the, the the way we organize and take children through that journey can come back to their human needs and their, their human drive and where they should be as a seven-year-old, what is meaningful to them as a seven-year-old.
0: So, That's really powerful.
1: Yeah. So... Actually, the strategies we put in place, one of the things I was really careful when we built our clinic, Toria, and when we work with school partners, so our main customers are actually schools who buy us in to come and deliver OT and speech therapy and ed psych and play therapy and music therapy in schools as part of the school team, or Mm -hmm. they'll buy us in to come and do whole school training or, or, or SENCO mentoring, all different ways of us helping enable the school to make institutional change as well as individual change. But we always work really hard on making sure those strategies are really affordable, really cheap. It is, we're not yeah. talking about spending hundreds of pounds here. We're talking about, you know, some of the goals that we should be setting for our classroom of children are, can they make a choice for themselves? Yes. Can they
0: make a choice for themselves? Well, it goes, but it goes right down if if we think about it, Neris. to, it, you know, when I taught reception, actually, it was very, very simple things like, can they button their coat? Sounds bizarre. Can they button their coat? Can they zip their coat? And some children had fine motor control skills that, you know, issues. So therefore, it was about really
1: supporting their fine motor control in order to actually get them to to do that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And as an OT, I'd tell you that that starts at the pelvis. So are they and their feet, are they stable? Do they have a stable base of support before we start mm-hmm. looking at their hands? And that's breaking it down to the individual. But when we look at can a child put their coat on, we can step back even further, Toya, and ask ourselves is it meaningful to that child to put their coat on? So, yeah. say I've got Jack who has got really hypermobile hands and he's really struggling to get his coat on. And every single day he misses mm-hmm. 15 minutes of playtime because he can't get his coat on. Yeah. Have we added to his meaning? Have we added to his joy? Have we added to his participation? Yeah. Or have we taken away from it? Can we bridge the gap, put the coat on him, let him go out to the playground and then work on fine motor skills when we're doing measuring and maths and cooking? Yeah. Because suddenly he's working on his fine motor skills, making a cake that he gets to take home to his mum. And suddenly he's completely empowered. And it's a 99p cake mix that allowed him to do that. And it's looking at
0: each child in our class with those lenses and Mm -hmm. actually what can we do to ensure that the environment is not disabling them? What can we do to ensure Mm -hmm. that they are being enabled? And you said about that power of making choices. How would I enable that within a classroom? (sighs)
1: we are not able to make meaningful choices for ourselves if we don't understand ourselves and we don't understand the context we're in. So that comes back to that core component I labeled earlier, which is belonging. Mm. Create a community first. Who are we? Why are we here together? What is our role in each other's lives? What's our role? What's our identity? These are big cornerstones of occupational therapy and also psychology. And the reason they're cornerstones and they're the core of human function is because if I don't belong and I'm not going to be able to make a choice for myself, I'm not going to know myself, I'm not going to be empowered to do for myself. So we make a child belong by giving them an identity. My son had a real mixed bag one of the teachers that absolutely changed his life. He's got a beautiful teacher. Um, she loves flamingos. So if she's listening, she'll know who she is. Um, and he even now he's like, oh, I wish I could buy Mrs. Blah Blah this flamingo. But she, I said, look, he can't handle the noise when all the chairs get pushed out at the end of the day and everybody's running around to get mm-hmm. their coat. He gets really disorganized. Then he's last out. He comes out in a mess. He comes out without his homework and he comes out overstimulated. stimulated. Is there anything we can do? I don't know your classroom. You do. What can we do? And she went, do you know what? I could, at break time, he could go and cut the fruit up and get out 10 minutes early. He'd go and wash the fruit for for, for break time. And then at the end of the day, what he could do is go and put the leftover fruit in a bowl and hold it out in the playground as they leave so the children can take any of the spare fruit home. So we got him out of the classroom, but most importantly, what she did is she gave him a meaningful job. He had a job. I, yeah, I he, love that. He was the fruit king. And everybody wanted to chat to him at the end of the day because he had the fruit and he had a job and he had direction. Even better, because he obviously he's <laughs> his dyspraxic, his fine motor skills, he got to sequence a task. He got to carry out the motor steps. He got to execute a plan every day. Mm. But most importantly, if you, do you know what he loved? I mean, he was only little at the time. He loved being somebody important. Yeah. He went from being the last kid, the kid that got knocked over, the kid that was disorganized, the kid that didn't couldn't achieve, to being the king of the fruit. And that was where she gave him meaning and she gave him an opportunity to belong. And everything else fell into place for him there. Then we stopped having the meltdowns as he came back in from break time. We stopped having the meltdowns as he transitioned home. He belonged and he still loves her five, six years on because of that sense of belonging she gave him. That's
0: amazing. I like Mrs. Flamingo. We love Mrs.
1: Flamingo very much. Yeah,
0: But... If every child was considered in that way, and I and I, I think what you said that is so powerful is about the meaningful job. It's not just about sending the child to the locker or whatever, five minutes mm-hmm. early or somewhere, you know, just for them to, you know, not know what they're doing. Because actually that can be just as disorientating, but mm-hmm. actually to give them a meaningful job so that they feel purposeful. And as you say, to be the king of
1: fruit, what of power poetry. to hold? Yeah. Yeah, those pears were his master. (laughs) You know, he was the master of the pears. But, you know, we've got wiping down the board. We've got taking... In lots of the schools we work in, we have a thing called the Very Important Tray. And it genuinely, because we know, don't we, that children that have sensory processing disorder do really well if they do heavy lifting and they carry something heavy. It's very calming, Mm -hmm. very organizing. So we have a couple of sort of heavy Argos catalogs stuffed under a file that has written all over it. Very, very important, highly important documents (laughs) enclosed. Very, very important documents for your eyes only. And we get these kiddos to take them from one classroom to the other. And it it can be every kid has a go at it. Um, But if that Mm. kid just needs five minutes out, five minutes in quiet, instead of saying, okay, we're going to take you out now. We're going to give you five minutes of quiet. We go, I'm so sorry, John. I just need you to carry the very important tray to Mrs. Blah Blah's office. Can you go down Mm. and do that? And Mrs. Blah Blah knows it's coming. And she opens it up and she goes, oh, my goodness, I so needed this document. That was so important. Thank you so much. Let me put another document in that file. It's really important that you get that back to Mr. Johnson. And they take that to Mr. Johnson and so on and so forth. We can empower children in really beautiful, affordable, and I know that's key. Sustainability. I run a social enterprise. Sustainability is our key objective. How do we do this affordably? So, one of the things we do in our classrooms, we go in and we work with the classroom teacher. We identify some of the children's sensory needs. We talk about the sensory differences within the classroom. And then we make a sensory strategies box, which has Mm. the zones of regulation cards, it has move and sits, it has fidget toys, it has breathing exercises, it has all. All the things that we know help a child calm, regulate and learn. And we put those into the classroom and then we go in and talk to the children about what each of those strategies affords them. Nearly every child will dive into that box to help them find a strategy and i think the most important part of that is valuing that the children children really want to learn so if you look at the key principles of whole child therapy we always talk about every child wants to win and do well every child wants to prove to you that they're a good boy or a good girl or a good child every child wants to get better children are so innately driven so much more than grown-ups they're so much braver than grown-ups they're so much more driven than grown-ups they're so much more capable of learning than grown-ups so we have this beautiful opportunity during childhood and youth to make these changes to grow these beautiful minds and so if we go into every situation the child and go right they're telling me a story they really want to succeed so why aren't they that i think one of the most environmentally disabling things i ever hear is oh he just doesn't want to do it oh he'll only do jobs he really wants to do oh he hates sharing and i remind everybody but so do grown-ups like toria you do not do a job you don't like what happens when you don't like the job you do you hand in your notice (laughs) Mm.
0: children don't have that
1: opportunity um you know, when we talk about a child doesn't like to share, well, if I leaned over the desk and stole your stuff, you know, helped myself to your Starbucks, which obviously I do to my partner <laughs> and my sister.
0: Oh, but, uh, <laughs> I, I, I am. I don't know if you've ever seen the episode of Joey and Friends when someone takes his chip. But yeah. I am that person. Like, yeah. I don't do sharing of food. I I never have. If I no. if anyone ever sees me with a bowl of chips, don't even ask me to have one because yeah. I won't give you one.
1: So why are we asking you know, a four year old to do it? <laughs>
0: well and it is how a, often do four year olds get to Yeah. Yeah. To share. But
1: why it, <laughs> it, it's yeah, really interesting. It's why? Why? Why is that a curriculum target? You don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Joey didn't want to do it. Uh, it I would why not does pass that, child, that curriculum yeah. target now. No, but why does a why does child have to achieve that to belong? Why can't we empower them by saying that they're able to make a choice? There's a real reward in giving somebody else a gift, isn't there? So if a child isn't sharing, help them learn the pleasure of giving away by getting them to make something for their friend, uniquely for their friend, uniquely for somebody else. Again, in the clinic, we do a lot of work of making things to give away, making things for the child to keep. You know, we've all worked with a transitional object for a child with trauma. Here's a transitional object that helps you know you're coming back or that you are connected to mummy still. We don't need to remove these things. All children need tethering and anchoring. All children need to learn the joy of giving yeah. a gift and receiving a gift. To make choices, we need oh, I apologize, my clock's clinging. Nope. Um <laughs> luckily nice it's it's not. Yeah, thank you. Um but to make choices we need to to know what the outcome is going to be we need experience of of making a choice and it failing and that being okay and making a choice and succeeding and that being okay we need to measure for a child you know i love flipping the targets on the head of not how many times a child has written their name accurately um but how many times has a child expressed enjoyment in their work We are allowed Mm. to have that in your classroom, Toria. You're allowed to have that as a way you're evaluating the child. I I can give you 100 psychological textbooks that say how imperatively important to a child's well-being that is. And we also know, don't we see the pyramid of learning? That If a child isn't emotionally and sensory motor, emotional and psychologically able, then they're not going to learn anyway. So why aren't we making that the principle of our classroom objective?
0: Absolutely. You've given us today so much food for thought. And my mind is just going, oh my goodness, it's like tick, 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 all of this stuff going on. Because it's, yeah, it's not about, yeah, it's, yeah. You can tell my mind is just going tick, tick, tick. And I'm sure all the listeners are as well. Now, we know that little Nerys didn't get the teacher that she needed. I but did get some amazing
1: teachers, but uh, yeah, but I got awful ones too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, if you could have had the perfect teacher, the perfect teacher that could be living or dead, who would have been your perfect teacher?
1: Maya Angelou, every step of the way. <gasps> Maya Angelou, yes. Yeah. 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 Be- because her innate sense of belonging, her innate sense of striving, through failure her innate sense of accountability you know this is me this is what I'm accountable for and I'm not going to wear accountability of other people's actions in my life her ability to look for the beautiful and to rise to raise those around her up as well as herself Uh, yeah she she is one of my life teachers and I and I find her incredibly empowering and humbling
0: what a brilliant answer, Neris. You have been an absolute
1: delight to talk to, even Thank though my you. head is now exploding with everything Sorry. I want to do in the classroom. Hey, um, okay. you do yes. know you've got a wonderful opportunity, Toria. I am going to let you know that recovery curriculum from COVID is one of the greatest educational opportunities we've ever had. Um, we, it's one of the greatest opportunities for us as educators to focus on well being, mm. mental health connection community belonging um it's been a really really hard ride schools and senior it leadership really teams have been so crippled i'm so in admiration of senior leadership teams and educators but this is our opportunity to sort of put effort down and say let's recover the human first and the curriculum second Human first, curriculum mm.
0: second.
1: Yeah. Nerys Hughes, you have been a delight to talk to thank you. Thank you. you so much for coming on Tiny Boys Talks. Oh, thank you so much, Tori. It's lovely to meet you. I can't wait to see you again soon.